0: What I'm saying is that one has to be careful when you look at studies of leakiness or permeability, that you understand exactly how the tests are being done, what is being measured and how that may or may not be translatable into a disease state. And that's that's the only point I'm making. The tests are fine if you know what they do and how they should be interpreted. I think the mistakes that people made is that they've gone from a test which measures one thing, to say it actually is telling us something completely different. That's where the mistake is being made. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose.
1: Hi everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from Houston is Dr. Emin Quigley. Good morning, Emin, or good afternoon to you.
0: Good morning, good afternoon, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It gets very confusing with these long
1: distance uh,
0: link-ups, but um, it's the best way to do it.
1: Exactly. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind coming over, maybe (laughs) once the world opens up and things are a bit safer, but um, Zoom will have to do for the moment. But Thank you for joining me. So you're a gastroenterologist and also a researcher at the Cornell Medical College in New York. Um, and I got you online because I read a, recently read an article of yours you published a, a, several years ago, uh, questioning the, the clinical validity or the utility, I suppose, of quote unquote leaky gut. Um, and you're a A a researcher and clinician who's been in this space for a long period of time. So I thought uh, we'd explore this concept of leaky gut uh, because not only are practitioners using that vernacular in clinic, but if you go online, as you as you know, um, it's widely discussed on the internet. And uh, we've done some surveys here in Australia, and uh, patients often uh, present to practitioners complaining of or self diagnosing leaky gut. So we want to look at what it is, or um the validity some of the, the testing methods and um is there a connection between quote unquote leaky gut or in intestinal permeability and systemic diseases as it's suggested online um perhaps before we dive into it maybe just if you could give us a, a thumbnail sketch of of your background and um how you spend your time between practice and uh, research sure
0: so it's my background is a bit complicated. Um, you won't need to be a genius to recognize that I'm not a Texan. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually Irish, um, where I went to medical school and did my intern year. I then did my initial training in internal medicine in Glasgow in Scotland and in Manchester in the UK with a two-year period in between those two when I did research, full-time research for two years at the Mayo Clinic. I then returned to the US to the University of Nebraska as faculty for 12 years. Then I was back in Ireland in Cork for 14 years, which included a stint as Dean of the medical school. And then I moved here to Houston, to Houston Methodist, which is an academic affiliate of uh, Weill Cornell Medical School in New York. And I've been here for the last almost eight years. My primary um, activities as a clinical gastroenterologist with a special interest in intestinal diseases, as against liver disease uh, or pancreatic disease, for example. Um, I also have administrative responsibilities because I'm chief of the division of gastroenterology and director of our Digest Diseases Center. And I do clinical research primarily in the areas of uh, functional bowel disease, um, gut microbiome, and uh, related areas.
1: Brilliant. So um, what uh, motivated you to write this article? I think it was 2016 or 2017, um, this little narrative and yes. on yeah. the concept of leaky gut. Well, it came out actually of
0: a lecture I was asked to give. It was um, after I'd left Cork, um, the director of the Elementary pharmabotic Institute, which is or Microbiome Ireland, which is based in Cork, uh, they had a, a celebration uh to mark their i think their 20th year and i was invited to come back and the director uh, asked me specifically to talk about this issue for exactly the same reason that you've invited me to this podcast today namely to try and address a lot of confusion and a lot of hype that's out there in the on the internet in particular about this concept of leaky gut and that's how i got into it And the more I researched it, the more I realized this is a very complex area and not one that's uh, readily summarized or readily uh, translated into very simplistic cause and effect in terms of disease.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, in uh, natural or quote-unquote functional medicine, uh, we've often been championing this idea of um, leaky gut for a long period of time. And I think with... um, Functional medicine, we detect a concept and sometimes maybe confuse pathology with physiology. And I think there's probably, as you've mentioned, it's very complex, and there's probably a middle ground somewhere. So, let's dive into understanding how the gut works and this idea of leakiness and what that means, um, if anything, to systemic and, and of course, gastrointestinal diseases. So, first of all, perhaps um, can you describe the the barrier, the gut barrier, its function, some of maybe the uh, main constituents?
0: Sure. Now, this is where I think a, re- a very reasonable level of confusion begins to arise because there are differing definitions of the gut barrier. To some people, the gut barrier means just that single layer of cells, the epithelium, that's it. To most of us, and particularly when you come to talk about clinical things, the gut barrier is actually much more complex. It includes a whole variety of things, from the mucus layer to the that epithelial layer to the the various cells beneath the layer that all contribute to protecting uh, the the gut wall and protecting the gut from toxins, from any potential injury from the outside. So, I think I've tended to go with a kind of a looser definition of the um, the gut barrier, but you know, strictly speaking the the physiologists, the 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 real scientists if you like, <laughs> will, will will try and restrict that to just the epithelium.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I think that's
0: a source of, of quite a bit of confusion. Um, and I think when you one is talking about using the terminology, I think you should make an attempt to define exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. And you mentioned in the paper, the, the mucus layer is probably underappreciated because that's quite a, a thick layer, is it not?
0: Correct. And that's, that's another thing you see all the time. So if you look at a cartoon of the gut wall, what you see is this, you know, layer of cells, which is maybe an inch high. And then on top of it, there's a tiny little layer of mucus. In fact, the proportions are complete in the other direction, the mucus layer. And of course, it varies along the intestine. Uh, The mucus layer uh, is much much thicker than the the cell that that single cell layer, and also, of course, they're actually within the mucus layer. There are actually two layers: there's the the really you know tight, uh, compact mucus layer just above the the epithelial cells, and then above there's a much looser um, layer uh, which contains more bacteria, which is more, if you like, admixed. With what's going on in the, in the gut lumen itself whereas the, the mucus mucous layer which is just above the epithelial cell itself um, you find very few bacteria for example
1: yeah so with the this leaky gut hypothesis the view is that the uh, epithelial cells that um since the the gulf between them widens and that uh, allows easy access to things say like lipopolysaccharide um but it sounds like there's a quite a thick barrier there with the mucus perhaps. So um, can you describe what constituents um, do and don't or um, do pass into the, the, I suppose systemic or into the lumen, sorry, from the lumen into okay. systemic circulation and vice versa? So this is actually a critical
0: issue because there are a couple, actually there are a number of ways that substances, molecules, bacteria, bacterial products, toxins, whatever you want to to talk about, can get from the lumen of the gut across the gut wall and into the circulation. And these need to be very clearly understood. Now, the the one that is the easiest to measure, the one actually that we've measured for, for decades, is called the paracellular pathway. And that is the pathway... That lies between cells, so between one cell and another, there's a little gap, which is the paracellular pathway, and that is the one that's easiest to study because that's the one we, we measure when we use lactulose mannitol, or we used to use there we used to use radio markers in the past, and that's what you're measuring. Now, what's important to understand is that the primary function of that pathway is to move small ions like sodium and chloride small molecules like uh, and, and small molecules like water so that's the pathway that's primarily dealing with electrolyte and water transport and in fact i just as a, an excellent review article that i just came across uh, which i think is is, is is has just been published and it's one of the few places i actually was able to find numbers right. so for example uh if there are two pathways through the palace pathoset- what is called the pore power pathway and that actually only transports molecules that are up to eight angstroms in size and i'll give you a context for that in just a second mm-hmm. there's another pathway through this again through the parasite which is called the leak pathway which actually can take things up to 100 angstroms now if you just to put that in context if you take a, a bacteria which is often invoked in these things like salmonella A salmonella organism is about one micron wide, which is 10,000 angstroms. Right. So I think one of the mistakes that people have been making, and it's a very understandable one, is that they're taking measurements in man. And the only thing we can really measure in man is is the paracellular pathway. We're taking measurements in man from a pathway that can only really transport very small molecules and extrapolating to that to say that bacteria can march across it or that large molecules like the lycopalysacra which you mentioned can march across it i think that's where the mistake is being made
1: okay now, yeah,
0: that having, makes sense. having said that having said that it's important to recognize that bacteria can get across and large molecules can get across but they don't get across by that pathway how do they get across so if you have inflammation in the gut or a severe injury to the gut, like say radiation or whatever, then your cells actually die. And you get whole gaps between, you know, where there was a cell, there's now a gap and that's how these things get across. There's also, uh, there are also mechanisms whereby the the cells can take up large molecules uh, and transport them across the cell. So there are other mechanisms, but they are not the ones that you measure when you measure what people usually refer
1: to as the leaky gut. That's the main issue. Okay, yeah, that's, that clears it up, yeah, completely. <laughs> so it's just the maximum width that the paracellular gap is, in a sense, is far too small for these um, putative molecules to, to, to um, transport through. Right. Um, having said that, let's just quickly dive into, because often uh, in the literature and certainly in this industry, there's a lot of discussion about some of these constituents like um, zonulinocludins and and particular zonulin, so, um, well, first of all, can you just quickly describe some of these little uh, proteins and mechanisms and and what they do? And then um, we'll look at, yeah, whether they're an issue in in some systemic diseases.
0: Sure. So basically uh, what keeps the cells together is what's called a tight junction. And the tight junction is what regulates how tight the cells are to each other or how far apart they are and there are a number of proteins involved in that one of them is zonulin and those is occludin another was called Cloudin. I, I don't think we need to get into details of all of that but mm. they, so there are several proteins that play a key role in all of this and one of the reasons these proteins are important is that they can be affected by bacteria they can be affected by molecules like tnf alpha which is so important in inflammatory conditions and they they can affect how well these function now zonulin has become popular because you can measure it and in fact there have been a lot of studies that looked have looked at zonulin in the serum and used it as a measure of damage to the tight junctions and therefore leakiness of the tight junction but in fact it does not correlate very well and in fact there's a nice little it's actually a letter to one of the journals recently Showing that commercially available ELISAs do not actually measure zonulin at all, wow, because of cross-reactivity with other molecules. Um, So I think, you know, these are neat ideas, but I think I would say the the what I take, and I remember now, I'm not a biochemist and I'm not a microbiologist, but the message I take away from all of this is that we're not yet ready to use things like measurements of zonulin in clinical practice to make decisions about managing looking after people
1: okay thank you uh, so just
0: as you as in fact you mentioned that in your when your questions that you gave to me nathan you you asked me about a specificity and you're absolutely correct there is a lot of debate about a specificity
1: so okay so they it could be a, another molecule that is essentially a, a false positive in a sense I'm mistaking it for zonion or, or maybe something else yep um okay so it might be a bit of a moot point now but let's just quickly touch upon some of the commercially available tests for um maybe well yeah measuring intestine permeability maybe some other markers that may better reflect damage and inflammation to the to the epithelium if that's if that's how molecules are uh, leaking because of the apoptosis and and a massive gulf i suppose then yes exactly but let's start with um the the commonwealth the, the lactulose mannitol test um. yeah, describe the test and perhaps its strengths or if there are any and limitations. Oh, no,
0: no, 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 no. It's a very valuable test. And okay. I, I, I just, it's just, I've no problem with the test. The problem I have is how you interpret
1: it. Yes, okay.
0: So so the lactose-malatol test will measure paracellular permeability and if there's increased paracellular permeability, it will detect it. And it's basically, and there's a whole lot of similar ones. It's basically looking at um you know, low molecular and higher molecular weight um, molecules and which gets through, which does not get through. So obviously, if you've low permeability, then only the, the low molecular weight molecule get through, et cetera. So it's a very clever test. But but what is measuring is paracellular permeability, and that may be abnormal in disease states. It may be abnormal in, in if you've got a problem with di- if you've got diarrhea, which is due to loss of water and electrolytes, then you, your permeability may be abnormal. So it's, it's, I'm not, you know, I want to make this absolutely clear. I'm not doing down the test. These are very clever right. tests. Yes. What I'm, I'm saying so- is that you can't say that, oh, I measured a lactose mannitol ratio and it's it's abnormal. Therefore, the patient is got bacteria entering the bloodstream and causing infection and sepsis. That's the leap of faith that I'm not allowing you to make.
1: <laughs> right, i okay.
0: I'm not in any way being uh, denigratory about the
1: actual... The test itself. It's a very valuable test. So, in that context, and we'll, we'll get into it shortly, is what, what states are, is uh, excessive, you can call it excessive um, uh, paracellular pathway movement, uh, what conditions is that associated with?
0: Or abnormal lactose mannitol ratios have been shown in celiac disease, they've been shown in inflammatory bowel disease, they've been shown in irritable bowel syndrome, they've been shown across a wide range of, of conditions. And that makes perfect sense to yeah. me, because there are, these are illnesses that are associated with maybe some inflammatory change, some injury from bacteria, et cetera, which alters the pathway, the pyrocerid pathway, and leads to, and certainly, you know, inflammation can certainly impact on the tight junctions and can lead to uh, the changes in permeability, which you can detect with the lactose rate test.
1: Sure. So within um, maybe, could you infer if th- there's increase of this uh, paracellular pathway that inflammation could be affecting the uh, epithelium more more broadly like with the the damage uh, apoptosis yeah,
0: absolutely so you know you're absolutely correct you know so you could envisage a situation whereby an insult it could be anything um has affected the paracellular pathway but also damaged cells themselves so indirectly you could be picking up a, a, a an actual insult to the to the epithelium so in that way you could be correct but but it would be indirect it, yes. it would be yeah. direct evidence and you you've mentioned some other things like calprotectin now calprotectin um, actually is a molecule that derives from neutrophils and that is a, actually has proven to be a very sensitive test of inflammation in the gut. It tells us nothing about permeability, but it tells us about inflammation. And it's used really quite widely now to differentiate between inflammatory bowel diseases such as Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and say a non-inflammatory condition or usually non-inflammatory condition like irritable bowel syndrome. And of course, it's also been used to monitor the progress of patients who have inflammatory bowel disease and to tell whether they're responding to treatment or whether they're relapsing.
1: Yeah, right. Was there another one? I haven't looked at this for a while. Um, some sort of marker from eosinophils in in the the gut lumen as a marker of inflammation. It's, it's escaped my mind at the moment.
0: Yes. Well, the, there are a number of other molecules that pe- people have looked at. Mast cell um, molecules produced by mast cells, like um, uh, tryptase oh, yes. uh, or serotonin. They've looked at eotaxin, which is produced by eosinophils. There are a variety of molecules which have been looked at, but the you know, they've really not got into the clinical arena ex- except for very specific areas. Right. This mast cell activation syndrome, then you look where you measure tryptase in blood. Uh, but for, um, for inflammatory conditions, the two that have really uh, become widely used in clinical practice are uh, calprotectin and lactoferrin, which has similar implications. Sure.
1: Um, do we have any any proxy marker or um, way to gauge mucus um, integrity or, or thickness other than the,
0: endoscopy? Yeah, well, there are, no, it's, it's a very difficult day. There have been, um, for example, you can look at ratios between different mucin type 1 and mucin type 2. There have been a number of studies over the years which looked at different mucin glycoproteins and shown that they're altered in disease states, but none of them have really got into the clinical practice. Now to actually measure the thickness of the mucus layer uh, clinically is very challenging. It can be done, uh, particularly with some of these new um, uh, 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 micro, endomicroscopic methods, but nothing that's really got into clinical practices yet. In fact, some of these endomicroscopic techniques can, you can, can actually look at, at gap junctions between cells and look wow. at uh, changes. That, that's that been looked at in the upper gastrointestinal tract in particular in patients with um,
1: celiac disease or uh, gluten sensitivity. Okay. Mm, yeah, what's this space? All right. So now I want to perhaps yeah, explore, you, we've touched upon it, like the the connection between leaky gut and systemic disease. Um, so maybe it's a bit of a broader question and it's a mantra and I suppose it's been... Um, use in Socrates back in the day, that all, all diseases start in the gut. Oh, yeah. um, i go for that. you go for that? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe the, the question is, um, there is this uh, association between uh excessive pathway of, of uh, molecules in these diseases, but um, does limiting this pathway have an effect on improving diseases? Yes, no, That's
0: that's a great question. Uh, the answer is that there is good evidence from celiac disease, from inflammatory bowel disease, and even from irritable bowel syndrome that if you use treatments which ameliorate, if you like, that paracellular pathway, that it actually will get better. And of course, that will in general will parallel recovery of disease because, of course, you're healing the intestine in general, so you're healing the paracellular pathway, therefore your permeability normalizes. And that makes perfect sense to me. Does that tell you that the change in the par- paracellular pathways caused the disease? No. Uh, that's that's where the leap of faith occurs. Right. So, as you can expect, if you take, say, let, let's take an inflammatory condition like celiac disease or Crohn's disease, for example. Now, there's a lot going on there. You know, there there's there is certainly increased leakiness. Through the paracellular pathway there's also a lot of inflammation going on and actually if you looked at biopsies in these patients you see there's actually gross damage occurring to cells the other thing which of course we haven't spoken about yet is the role of the immune system in all of this mm. so we do know for example that these dendritic cells or antigen presenting cells which are in the the layer below the epithelium and the submucosa, they can actually send out an extension that literally reaches into the lumen. They can grab a bacterium or a part of bacterium and pull it into the submucosa, and there they can mount an immune response to try and neutralize, get rid of that, whatever that pathogen or whatever that, that external yeah. agent is so you know so that's another part of mucosal defense of, of, of the gut barrier if you like is that immune response and also i mentioned earlier this very tight mucous layer which is very few bacteria one of the reasons it has very few bacteria is that it has molecules in there called defensins which are antibacterial which are produced by specialized cells in the gut wall called, called Paneth cells so there are a lot of mechanisms here to keep on the one hand to keep what's bad out but on the other hand to allow us to absorb what nutrients we need from from what we eat, and obviously that has to be a very selective process and a very sophisticated process so that you absorb your sugars and your fats and your vitamins etc which you do not allow bacteria or toxins to to get in um, and that's really the basis of, of the of the function of the gut barrier it's a two-way street and the one end It has to allow certain things to pass on the other hand it has to keep other things out
1: yeah yeah um and just quickly i think you mentioned that at least in animal models where you can like knock out genes say specifically for for um those tight junctions etc in uh, animals of that deleting those genes doesn't seem to affect the the health or cause the systemic diseases that um is speculated that leaky gut causes
0: Exactly. And now that's a that's a very good point. And actually, this review article that I mentioned by the senior author is a man called Gerald Turner, who's been working on gut barrier for years and has actually highlighted a lot of these things that I mentioned earlier. And he lists in that article a whole list of uh, different knockout models where there's, you know, they're not falling over dead from sepsis. Yeah and if you think of it you know if you think about it as well for say if you to get back to celiac disease or crohn's disease disease where we know that there's increased permeability they're not classically associated with overwhelming sepsis
1: mm.
0: they are they can be associated with inflammatory conditions in the body in general and that's maybe you want to talk about that a little bit but that can occur for other reasons and I mentioned the immune system. So one of the things that can happen in, in any of these inflammatory conditions is that the immune system gets hyperactivated for a number of reasons. And that's what generates the systemic immune response, not bacteria directly going in necessarily.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, but could, could like a quote-unquote dysbiotic microbiome Um, If the dendritic cells are reaching out and sampling it, could that trigger, that can obviously influence uh, systemic uh, inflammatory tone?
0: Absolutely. And that's been shown very nicely in animal models. And actually, parenthetically, I think one thing we should mention is that, you know, the other phenomenon that we hear about a lot in this context is translocation, bacterial translocation. And that's a phenomenon that's been recognized for probably 50 years or so. With a whole lot of work done in in a variety of, of conditions such as severe burns or shock or trauma or hypotension severe injuries to the gut severe pancreatitis for example they've all been associated with bacterial translocation in animal models now what's been very difficult to prove is translocation in humans because we don't have good techniques for measuring it that's been a real challenge the the assays that we do have have not proven to be very acu- accurate, and I think that's the real area that's really missing in this literature here. That would really tie all the tie tie the whole thing up is if we had a really good, reliable, and accurate uh, test for measuring um, trans translocation in humans, which we don't have right now.
1: Right. So uh, that's translocation of the entire um, bacterium.
0: Bacteria or, or yeah. bacteria. Yeah. Or, or could be bacterial products.
1: OK. Yeah. So there is this concept of like um, low grade endotoxemia um, uh-huh. driving systemic health issues. Um, what's your, your view on that concept?
0: Well, I I would say that I'm agnostic on it right now. <laughs> in the sense yeah. that um, it's, you know, and I've actually i have to put my hand up here i have written papers particularly in the area of liver disease where we talk about this this kind of sequence of events whereby whatever let's say it's it's excess alcohol for example which disrupts your your microbiome which alters your gut barrier you know bacteria get across to get into the um portal circulation they activate an inflammatory response and leads to liver inflammation liver disease etc you know that hypothesis has been is is out there for a long time and there's i'm sure there's some truth to it but it's not that simple right um and i think you know you don't have to get bacteria across to activate an immune response but you mentioned the microbiome i think we should spend a, a minute talking about that absolutely because one of the functions of a normal microbiome is actually to promote the integrity of the gut barrier, and it does that through acting some, by through through some of those molecules we mentioned earlier. It, it, it enhances the integrity of the mucus layer. So, and the other thing, of course, is that your your normal your commensal microbiome has learned to live in a state of what we call tolerance with the gut, mm. with you, with your immune system, and that's all very very helpful in maintaining a, a an intact barrier in all its manifestations now what happens in in disease and that's been nicely shown uh, in a variety of models so for example if you and this actually was done in done in humans as a colleague of mine did this work in cork so if you uh, take uh, human uh, cells uh, immune cells say lymphocytes and if you expose them to a commensal probiotic organs if you want to use the term like a lactobacillus or a bifid yes. you don't get an inflammatory response you actually get an anti-inflammatory response if you do the same experiment but now you actually use salmonella to have murium for example which is a known pathogen you get a marked inflammatory response so one of the key things in all of this is that the the gut through its development with its microbiome has learned to recognize what's normal from what's pathological and for for the pathogen it mounts an inflammatory response to try and get rid of it with the commensal there's an anti-inflammatory response to protect against other pathogens so and that's key to all of this um because of course if you do get inflammation in the gut that will secondarily affect your permeability, will affect also the immune response. It, it could ultimately if it's severe inflammation or like a, abnormal inflammation, like you would get inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease, you will actually get injury to the cell wall and that's that cell lining and you will get, you know, bad things will happen.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely makes a lot of sense um and yeah it reminds me for a while here we've um had this acronym to describe these layers we've named uh, debbie um d is for diet obviously that the food you take in ease for enzymes that you need to obviously break down the the, the food constituents um b's for bacteria but i mean it's probably better to call the microbiome <laughs> the other b's for the sure. barrier i was for the um Inflammatory or the immune system, and then ease the enteric nervous system that also, as you know, with like IBS, um, communicates with the the gut barrier in the brain, etc. So, um, my question is: I, I think like with these, some practitioners are, are treating, um, or quite an, are treating, treating like leaky gut with all these nutrients and herbs and, and prebiotics, etc. My hunch is it's probably having some effect on the intestinal permeability, but maybe the The therapeutic benefits are are because these agents are anti-inflammatory and help the microbiome, et cetera. So um, my question is, I suppose if you were to design a drug or uh, a nutraceutical or something, what do you think of the the, the targets for, well, maybe we need to break it up into like IBS versus say a systemic disease. What are, if it's basically, if it's not so much the tight junctions, what are some of the targets we should be thinking about or the researchers in the future?
0: I I think you've, you've, you've actually listed a lot of them there. So if you're thinking about maintaining an intact gut barrier in the broader sense, you should be paying attention to the mucus layer, to the epithelial barrier and to the immune response, to say the least. There's one, actually one other barrier that we haven't mentioned, which is very interesting and newly described. There actually is a vascular barrier in the gut as well. So, you know, you've, you've heard of the, the blood brain barrier There actually is a blood a a vascular barrier within the gut, which has been described very recently in a paper in nature, uh, which also, and which very interesting, some bacteria have learned to be able to bypass, which is very interesting. Hmm. Um, So, so that's, there is a a vascular barrier in the gut as well, which is another layer. So they're all important. So you probably need to pay attention to all of these. Now, in terms of treatment, uh, there have been studies done, and there's, there's actually one nice clinical trial which I came across, which is done by um, Dr. Vern, who's been working in this area for many years. And they did a recently, well, it actually last year, which is very recent, uh, they did a study where they did a randomized controlled trial of glutamine. Now, they done work over the years showing that glutamine had benefits in terms of gut barrier, and they showed that in patients with with post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea that they got better and their uh, barrier function improved. So that was interesting. And that's one of the few studies that I know of where there's been a direct relationship shown or direct, I shouldn't say relation, a direct association shown between improving the gut barrier. Then this mm. is using lactulose mannitol yes. um, and showing an improvement in symptoms. So that's that was kind of neat. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing, so that's one approach <clears throat> now the the other approach that you can take is to uh you deal with them with the microbiome and of course, there are lots of studies uh, showing that various probiotics can improve uh, gut barrier function. That's another approach you could take now. Have we seen studies where they've taken a disease state and shown a parallel relationship between improvement in gut barrier function and improvement in in symptoms not that many there there have been some studies including one that we did a few years ago where we showed um an improvement in immune function and correlated that with improvement in symptoms in irritable bowel syndrome but there aren't many studies like that um but that would be another approach you could take and of course then one of the most commonly uh, used approaches is to treat inflammation with everything from steroids to anti-inflammatories to biologics uh, you know, whether they're targeted anti TNF alpha or whatever it is. And so, by reducing the inflammation and by reducing all those molecules produced by inflammation, you will help to restore barrier function through restoring integrity.
1: Right, yeah. So, almost um, uh, working from systemic circulation out to the, the lumen yeah, by lowering systemic inflammation, it'll um, improve the integrity of the, the epithelium. Correct interesting um your thoughts on the like the presence of the autonomic nervous system with the vagal nerve in in the gut and do you think that offers any therapeutic um uh targets in the future
0: yes a very interesting question so um, <clears throat> the gut of course is is a is a nervous system unto itself and it has sensory and motor components it's got a so neuromuscular apparatus <clears throat> and certainly um We know that um, certain inputs tend to drive increased fluid loss from the the intestine, and some certain inputs do the very opposite. So, and that's been known for for a long, long time. But looking at the vagus, looking at the sympathetic innervation, that's been known for for years. Um, And that may well also have a role in terms. And of course, there's an very um, uh, intimate relationship between um, uh, the immune system and the nervous system in the gut as well as elsewhere. And if you uh, have, you know, and we'll take just one example. Let's let's say you, you have activation of serotonergic nerves. You know, those nerves that produce serotonin or 5 and um, that will have distinct effects in terms of muscle function, nerve function, but also on, on uh, epithelial function. So all of these neurotransmitters may have effects beyond what we would traditionally re- regard as their effects, namely looking at nerve transmission or in- interactions with muscle, but they also would interact with the epithelium and alter permeability.
1: Interesting. Um, and just finally, whilst on systemic disease, just to maybe it's more just to reiterate, I think a lot of um, patients and, and practitioners alike view the, the leaky gut as contributing to th- things, particularly like autoimmune diseases, say, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, um the gut being the seat of health. Uh, how would you view the gut being the seat of ill health, potentially in, in this um, scenario? Is it more, do you think, because of the the, the immune connection here, or the or leaky gut? Probably not. I, um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I would I would be
0: cautious about using the term leaky gut. I think that you can certainly see how the gut you know the gut could play a role because it, you know, it's the largest immune organ mm. in the body. It's also, you know, the the enteric nervous system is similar in size to the spinal cord. Um, So you've got lots of of potential players. And I think it's a pity to oversimplify it and just think in terms of, oh, the gut is leaky, all these molecules are getting in there, are all these inflammatory responses to them. That's fine, but um, we haven't connected the dots as yet.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And And there are multiple other ways that you can invoke and we mentioned about the immune response, and that's extremely important. Uh, we mentioned about the gut-brain axis. And now how, how that operates is also unclear. You know, mm. again, it could all be connected through the enteric nervous system and the signaling there. It, there could be hormones being released, for example, peripherally and then getting into systemic circulation. So there are a whole number of players there that could be relevant that we're just beginning to, to learn about.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. But- as i keep saying watch this space we certainly know there's a, a connection it's just teasing out um the pathways for for better sort of therapeutics in the future um i really want to pick your brain on things like SIBO and IBS but maybe we'll save that for another day because i know you've um, done a lot of work in that space and it's probably another certainly there's a whole another podcast yes um so just maybe just to any sort of closing remarks on you know the perception of leaky gut and you know, i think you sort of just mentioned then but um. Any any sort of basic takeaways you want to reiterate?
0: I think, you know, I think it's very important that I emphasise that I am not dismissing the concept of leaky gut. What I'm saying is that one has to be careful when you look at studies of leakiness or permeability that you understand exactly how the tests are being done, what is being measured, and how that may or may not be translatable into a disease state, and that's that's the only point I'm making. The tests are fine if you know what they do and how they should be interpreted. I think the mistakes that people made is that they've gone from a test, which measures one thing, to say it
1: actually is telling us something completely different. That's where the mistake has been made. Sure, yeah, nice message. All right, Dr. Cookley, I really appreciate your time. Um, Any, have you got any suggestions on Following you or resources, literature. I know you've you've done some work on making monographs on IBS. Any any yeah uh, areas people should could follow up and and, and follow you or, and or follow you.
0: Well, the um, <laughs> me. the uh, I think you know, I mentioned this this article a few times. It's 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 very technical and it's, it's pretty detailed. But I think there's this article by his uh, Gerald, he's Gerald is J E R R O L D Gerald or Turner it's in uh, cellular molecular gastroenterology and hepatology in uh what month was it in oh, yeah we can, we can find it
1: and we'll put it in it's very we'll recent
0: it. it's it's, tr- it's 2020 volume 10 yep. pages 327 to, to 330 so that's one resource that I that I think I've always enjoyed reading his work on on the on gut permeability um I think that's an important resource, and I think that uh, there was a nice review by Michael Camilleri a few years ago. Yes, the, yes. Specifically at the at the different sugars and how they how they should be interpreted. I think
1: that's another resource that is good. That's word. worth looking at. Great. Well, we'll put your article and those couple in, in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, Doctor Quickly, I really appreciate your time and expertise. It's yeah, a wealth of information. As I said, I'd love to um, explore things like SIBO and IBS in the future, and perhaps at some stage with you.
0: Sure be happy to do that well
1: thank you enjoy your That's
0: evening i'll tell you to enjoy your morning <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lo- lovely
0: okay goodbye now
1: for useful links and resources make sure you check out the show notes the information provided in this episode is for educational
0: purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.